Hello and welcome to season three of Family Twist, a podcast about DNA surprises, found family, and amazing adoption stories. I'm Kendall Austin Stulse, and my partner is Corey Stulse. We've had fabulous guests during seasons one and two. We're sharing stories of people who identify as NPEs, also called not parent expected, others who found out they were donor conceived and have surprise siblings, and even others with unique family twists. We started this podcast to spotlight Kendall's adoption story and his discovering both sides of his biological family in 2017. So if you're just finding the podcast, we encourage you to start with episode one to learn more about Kendall's journey. Thank you for listening. This is part two of Amber's story. Now, I urge you to listen to part one first because otherwise you're not going to understand what's going on. And it's a great story. That's funny because obviously he was very uh, busy in college, but we've had another guest on who's going to be on again soon with his <laughs> half sister. And they know, I think they're up to 73, 74 that they know about. And they That's think that crazy. might just be half because I guess the the donor was told halfway through his, you know, um, donations, here's how many you've got successful, you know, and it was like around 70. And that was only like oh, halfway wow. through his donor time. So I just... Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So basically, and this is fascinating to me. So he was at Albany Medical College and he said literally like the first week of school, they went around to all the dorms and they said, if you want to get in good with the professors hmm. and you want to support the college, you will go donate at the clinic. And they gave him a form to fill out and they got a physical. And then once you pass the physical and the paperwork stage, then you were in. And it was 25 bucks a pop. And my bio dad is very tall, very fit, blonde hair, blue eyes. And he's like, oh, I thought I was popular because there were a lot of Jewish families in the Albany area. And I was like, nope, my dude, you were like 6'3 with blonde hair, blue eyes. That's why you were popular. <laughs> According to my parents, they didn't even pick. It wasn't like, you know, mm -hmm. now where you go through like a catalog. They just look, I mean, my, my dad that I was raised with is a pretty tall guy with curly blonde hair and light eyes. When I first found Kurt, my adopted sister who I grew up with, she was like, oh, he looks like he could be dad's cousin. Like mm. they look similar enough that they right. clearly did a good job of trying to make it match. But yeah, he said he was the most popular donor in the program and he donated probably over 500 times over three years. Wow. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Did he get in good with the professors after that? <laughs> <laughs> well, he went on to be a doctor, so yeah. you know, he, he at least made it through med school. It's amazing. <laughs> so how many of your half-siblings have you formed a relationship with? So I have met... So Caitlin and I are super close. We talk all the time. And I think we just, you know, we really had that relationship that was like forged through not only her supporting me through my discovery, but then we also like found our biological dad together. And then as other siblings came in, we were kind of the ones like handing off the information. Mm -hmm. So we became very close. And then we, before we had kids, we would like go on vacations together wow. and stuff and kind of try to make up for lost time. She's come out to visit me and our kids have met. And so it's kind of nice that we have that. But I think she and I will always be close by virtue of like, having just a ton in common, but also having these experiences that we went through together. And then I've met Karen and Josh, Jeremy's brother. Yeah, I think that's it. Everybody else is kind of too geographically spread right, apart. Right. Yeah. But I would like to have everyone meet up 
sometime. I do think that would be fun. But we have a group chat that we all... Oh, and Tom. Sorry, I forgot about Tom. So Tom... Tom grew up down the street from me. Wow. And was best friends with my cousin. Oh, my goodness. Huh. huh. Wow. Crazy. Um, To the point that there was kind of a funny misunderstanding where he was not telling people. Because he also found out through 23andMe. And that's been interesting. Half of our sibling group knew and the other half found mm. out mm-hmm. he did not know he found out through 23 and me he matched with me and caitlin and caitlin gave him the rundown and then he joined our little group and like he and i he added me on facebook my cousin sees that we're connected on facebook and my cousin's like what's going on here mm. like how do you guys know each other and he was getting kind of defensive about it he was like how do you know my cousin da 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 and he was like, that's your cousin? And he was like, yeah. He's like, oh, that's my half-sister. And my cousin didn't know oh. about my status either and was just like, what? And kind of freaked out. Sure. And I was like, yeah, actually, we're not related. Sorry. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, his mind was blown. And to me, that's part of why I feel so strongly about advocacy and regulations, because there is like no, you know, I'm very lucky that I didn't date my brother. But like, there's a world where like, we're the same age, we like grew up in the same place with the same people. Yeah. And these things happen. And it's really creepy to think about all of my half siblings were all conceived in Albany, born around the same area, some of them left the area. But you know, even like my half sister and I have tons of friends in common, grew up 20 miles from each other. <laughs> so yeah. And so I've met, I've met Tom because <laughs> he's, he's local. Wow. Um, yeah. So I guess I've met four, four now. And for a while it was easy because I lived in New York city and a lot of people would like come through New York sure. city. I would get to meet them, but <laughs> um, yeah. And we've, we've now created a welcome packet. Did Jeremy tell you about the welcome packet? A little. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. yeah but you could tell us more. <laughs> I, I'm the creator of the welcome packet because I'm a type A nut job. We realized it was not sustainable. We've kind of slowed down, but I'm sure there'll be more eventually. And people have a lot of questions. And so we put basically, and also for like posterity's sake, because, you know, I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. (laughs) We put everything that we know about Kurt and about his family, then about all of us. We each have like a page with like a photo and like an intro so all of the information we have is now in essentially a PowerPoint. And when you pop up on 23andMe or Ancestry or whatever, you get invited to the group chat and you get the PowerPoint. And wow. whatever you choose to do from there is your choice. But at least we can say, like, here's all the information. And that way we don't have to, like, retell the whole thing. Right. <laughs> and, you know, spend the emotional labor of explaining yeah. everything. So, yeah, that's our new efficiency hack. Yeah. Well, has Kurt? <laughs> sort of embraced that this idea that a you all are welcoming to new half siblings and that he could eventually become involved with many of them or it's interesting he's only met me and caitlin and then he met trevin because trevin lives in california and like drove up was like i will come to sacramento like i want to meet you but we have this kind of weird dynamic (laughs) he kind of wants me to like that people for him a little bit like he (laughs) don't send me any weirdos yeah right like so i'll go to him and be like hey this person emailed you you didn't email them back like Mm. you want to meet with them and he'll be like oh yeah sorry i'm bad at email what's the deal with this person and and i'm just like i don't love being the go-between 
usually I'll just give people his email, but then he's like, you know, retired and like right. not checking his email all the time. Right. So then I have to be like, Hey, can I give this person your number? But yeah, I, I think he feels very strongly that we have a relationship and that's, he's never said this, but I feel like he's like, that's all the capacity I have. Mm -hmm. Like I have one. So that feels kind of weird. Yeah. It, there's no like playbook of like, how right. do you manage these relationships? How do you choose who to invest your like finite time and energy with? And, and it, it's just going to expand, right? Like right. The, we're only going up from here. But he was very tickled by the welcome packet. Good. Like, this is great. It has to be daunting because at the time that he was making all these donations, you know, there was never the thought that anybody could surface, much less right. hundreds, potentially hundreds of children. I can't imagine what goes through your mind when you finally figure that out. Like, oh, wow, this could just be exponential. <laughs> I had dinner with him recently. He was in town for his like... 35th class reunion, which is funny because I was like, oh, what your reunion is? He's like, well, how old are you? <laughs> like, well, that, that makes sense. There you go. I did it with him and his wife. And he was like, you know, all my friends said I did it right. I managed to like have these great adult kids that I get to like hang out with, but I didn't have to raise them. <laughs> <laughs> and so he was like, I feel like I cracked the code where I get to swoop in and have all the benefits yeah. and none of the actual risk and responsibility. I was like, yeah, like, great. Cool. Yeah, like, yeah exactly. <laughs> Thanks for my existence. Right. Yeah, basically. What have things been like with your immediate family, your mom and dad and mm. your sister? It's, we're at a good point with it. So initially, you know, my mom was like, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. You can't tell. You have to keep the secret too. And I was like, that's kind of bullshit. Mm -hmm. Like, this is my life. This is my story. This is happening to me. These were your choices. Right. But it's happening to me. Right. Um, and so, of course, you know, I went and made a documentary and a podcast. Right. <laughs> you sound like I um, feel. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, my thing is, I've just always been somebody that this is the way I process things. Is I, I it started with, you know, after this happened and while we were still looking for my bio dad, I was just trying to learn more about the industry and joining support groups and trying to understand like how this happened. And the more I found out, the more I kind of like pulled on the thread, I was more like, how is this legal? Like, how is this allowed? Mm -hmm. Learning more about people who, you know, like I said, I'm very lucky. I had a very straightforward situation where I had my discovery. I found my donor. He was cool. He doesn't have any kind of crazy illnesses or, you know, really scary medical history. But for most people, that's not the case. And I've met so many people who have everything from Ehlers-Danlos with like severe comorbidities to a woman who legit has something where the non-medical term is exploding heart disease that she inherited from her donor. Hmm. And she's like on a mission to find her half siblings because if they don't know about this condition, they can die. Ugh. And I'm just like, how did we get here? Yeah, right. Um, and the more I found out, the more I was infuriated. And so one day, right after my discovery, I had connected with a friend from college who was working at Slate Media at the time. And I told her the whole story and she was like, this has to be a podcast. And I was like, I don't know. But the more I thought about it, the more I was like, people don't know about this. I didn't know about this until it happened to me. And maybe if I share my story, one, people will reconsider their fertility options. And two, maybe people will reconsider telling their kids if they haven't told their kids yet. Right. 
So we made this whole podcast in 2018 and Slate was like, you know, we're not really interested in distributing this. We don't think it's the right time. We don't think people want to hear about this. It's <laughs> kind of gross. Like they were just very dismissive. And so it sat on the shelf. And then TJ, who's the producer, met this woman, Aubrey, who's a documentary filmmaker. And Aubrey was like, yeah, 23andMe just gave me a grant to make a documentary about DNA and ancestry, but I don't have a subject. And TJ was like, well, I have this podcast that nobody wants, but I have a subject. And so she connected me with Aubrey and we made the documentary. We had to do it in a super tight time frame because we had to get it done for Tribeca Film Festival. Mm -hmm. So we were like flying all over the country. Fortunately, Kurt was willing to participate. And I still had that audio from that first phone call with my parents and they wanted to use the audio in the documentary. And so I had to go to my parents and be like, look, like technically New York's a one party consent state. I can use this audio, but I don't want to do that without you knowing and without your consent. And my mom was very concerned about it. And I was like, look, you're not being named, you know, mm -hmm. and they agreed to sign off on it. And eventually they saw the documentary when it came out and they were like, you know, we're really proud of you. This is incredible. So I think that was healing in the sense that they were like, we understand why you're doing this. Whereas before they saw it, I think my mom really was like afraid of like what I would say or how she would come off in mm -hmm. it, I guess, which is fair. Mm -hmm. And then after we made the documentary, we kind of had shot it for it to be a full series or a full length that we couldn't find a home for it. And then TJ landed at Sony and they were like, oh, like, are you working on anything? And she was like, well, I have this podcast that nobody wants. So we made it into a documentary, but we still have the podcast. And they were like, eh, that's interesting, but I don't know if it's the right time. Cut to 2020, COVID happens. And Sony's like, hey, we can't send journalists anywhere. We can't report on stories. Does anyone have anything? And TJ again is like, hey, I still <laughs> have this thing. And they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, we want that. So they gave her some budget. We ended up re-recording a bunch of it, updating it really changing it to not be so much about my story, but to really be about the fertility industry with my story kind of as a through line. And it just went absolutely viral. We were the number one science podcast in the world. For a while, we were beating like This American Life and Radiolab mm -hmm. and downloads. It was crazy. And then all the interview requests were coming in. And at one point, I was like a notification on people's Apple Watches. Oh, <laughs> if wow. you had an Apple Watch and subscribed <laughs> to Apple News, yeah. you like got a notification with my face that was like, this woman has like over a hundred half siblings. And so my phone was blowing up. Like everybody was like, oh my God, you're on my Apple Watch. Um, <laughs> but this was all happening during COVID. So it kind of felt very surreal, you know, with sure. the documentary. The documentary was uh, a kind of smaller splash, but it was like a red carpet and there was a party and there was a thing. Whereas like, you know, we kind of put this out into the world and then I sat in my office and did all these interviews. Yep. <laughs> but it's been really cool to, you know, one, I'm still in a class action lawsuit against the FDA. And we can talk more about that, but to also see the ASRM slowly making changes and two, you know, people reach out to me all the time and say, I used your documentary to come out to my family mm. as donor conceived. I used your documentary to explain to my parents why I'm so hurt by them not being honest with me. Or like you said, I see myself in this podcast. I'm hearing my story represented and so to me, both of these projects were a labor of love. I didn't make a single cent off of either sure. of them. But I think it's important to have our stories 
out there. And I do know people who, because of my story, have made different choices about their fertility journey. Um, <laughs> and so I think that, you know, the more people hear our stories, more people might realize like, hey, just because we could do this and we did do this for decades, maybe this isn't the best way to do this mm-hmm. for the end human beings we are creating. Right. And you would think that, I don't know, I think that the argument should be more salient now because people are just finding things much more easily than we could have 20 years ago. So I feel like it just feels even that much more unfair to the children, you know, who are not being told the truth, you know? Yeah. To circle back on your question about my family. So I made the documentary when I was pregnant with my oldest son, and then I named him after my dad. And that I think was, it was something I wanted to do, but it was also symbolic. Like I wanted him to know like nothing. I mean, I told him repeatedly, like nothing is changing. Nothing is changing. And I think that was a huge step towards his healing in this because he also, you know, this was a surprise for him too. This was a healing journey for him too. And I feel like I had a lot more resources to deal with that than he did. And then my mom, I think was still resentful. And then we had two summers ago, this huge blowout fight because we were at a wedding and I was talking to the father of the bride and I was saying, oh, your daughter's such a wonderful young woman. Do you have parenting advice? And he said, you know, we always treated our kids like people and we were always honest with them. Mm -hmm. No matter what, even when it was hard, we were always honest with them. And my mom standing right next to me goes, absolutely, 100%, we did the same thing. Oh, Oh, mom. (laughs) And I turned to her under my breath and I said, you know, that's not true. Right. And she said, it is true. You never asked. I never lied to you. You never asked. Wow. And I got up and left. I was like, I can't. Yeah. I can't. I can't. And I left and she came and found me and she was like, what's wrong? Is something wrong? And I was like, yeah. I was like, it's super invalidating (laughs) for you to say in front of my face that you never lied to me. And then she just like lost it. She Uh. was like, if I'm a monster, all these people are monsters. I just did what the doctor told me to. You can't be mad at me forever. And I was like, I'm not mad at you, but I'm just saying like, acknowledge my lived experience that I was lied to. So then I was like, you know what? I can't have this conversation with you. I'm sorry. You're being too emotional. And like, I'm going to say something not nice. So I'm leaving. So I left and uh, she texted me a couple days later and was like, you know what? You were right. Mm. I'm really sorry. And it was this like long, very thoughtful apology, Mm. which I was not expecting. That is not her style. Mm -hmm. And she was like, you were right. I lied to you. I lied to you for my own benefit and I benefited from lying to you and that hurt you. And I'm sorry. Wow. And it was just like a switch flip again. This was two years ago. So this was like, like five years into this. Mm -hmm. She finally got it that (laughs) I wasn't just trying to be difficult. I wasn't just trying to make things hard for her. This had actually been hard for me. Right. And it was all like on the basis of this one lie. Because that is something I still struggle with is like, what's real and what's not, you know, because if the biggest thing in your life or one of the biggest things in your life 
is a lie, like what else is a lie? Right. You know? No. And I think you made the point when you said that, you know, nothing changed about the way that you feel about the man who raised you. And probably it never would have. If you've been told when you were three, that's still your dad. He's still the person that took care of you and loved you. And, you know, I wish parents could see that, could realize that those relationships aren't going to change. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you see this a lot, like there's plenty of adoptive parents, step parents that raise their kid and the kid understands in full transparency that this person is not a relative. And yet it's so funny to me when I see these recipient parents online who are like, well, blood doesn't matter. It's just love that matters. And it's like, Great, exactly. So tell your kids. Yeah, (laughs) right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you really feel that way, then just be honest. Right. And I think things have shifted dramatically for the good. Most doctors and clinics are telling people, you know, tell your kids so early that it's not even a memory. Make this part of their understanding of who they are. But you still then see, like, (laughs) you know, there was a clinic just down the street from my house when I lived in New York City that was touting new facial recognition software that would best match you to a donor. Wow. Hmm. Wow. And it's like, well, that's kind of weird. And then still we get new folks every week in the sport group who are finding out through 23andMe. So there's still people out there clinging to these lies mm. when there's so many stories out there now, like mine and others where people are saying, tell the truth, just, yep. you know, give your kids the courtesy of, yeah. Their real identity. Well, yeah. and it's, it seems like the industry is giving people tools, giving them reasons to lie. Mm. Exactly. So what's the goal of the lawsuit against the FDA? So Nick Eisel is kind of the person behind this. And Nick has a very interesting story. He was the subject of a documentary called The Genius Factory, which was based on a series of Slate articles. Nick was conceived at a clinic that was basically openly doing eugenics. Mm. They were claiming that all of their donors were Mensa members, but they weren't actually validating that. So Nick's actual biological father was a very unstable person with severe mental health issues Mm. and a mile long rap sheet. Mm. Whoa. Despite his mom being told he was a physicist and a Mensa member and, you know, all this stuff that Mm -hmm. wasn't true. And Nick was diagnosed with some mental health issues that he inherited from his donor, was able to treat them. But as he started looking for his half siblings and finding them, he was finding that they had taken their lives because Mm -hmm. they had these mental health issues they didn't know about and were struggling and their family didn't know how to support them because they weren't given the full medical history. So he kind of made it his mission in life to get the FDA to be accountable to transmittable diseases and conditions through sperm and egg donors. The first step in that process is he petitioned the FDA and he got over 500 signatures on this petition and comments saying the purpose of the FDA is to keep patients safe through treatment. And we have all of this evidence that there are people inheriting conditions from donors because the donors aren't being screened properly and the FDA should be accountable to those screening failures and remedy them. The FDA denied the petition and they said the recipient parent is the patient. The child conceived Mm -hmm. through donor conception is not. Therefore, the FDA holds no responsibility for the outcome of that pregnancy. Um, they only are responsible for the patient. 
which is why the only changes, the only restrictions in the United States there have ever been to donor conception was in the 80s during the HIV crisis because there were women contracting HIV from their donors. That is the only time the industry has ever been regulated. They also just like lie to patients. They tell them they're doing screening. They're not. Mm -hmm. As genetic screening is becoming more readily available, some clinics are changing their tune, but they're just not doing the kind of screening they're saying they are. In the documentary, I interview a friend of mine who's an egg donor who has rampant mental health history in her family, and she lied about it, and they didn't dig into it at all because she needed the money. Mm -hmm. And so it's creating these conditions where there's people who are desperate for cash, and there's people who are desperate for children, and the industry connects them, sure. <laughs> and sometimes not with the best results. So now we're suing the FDA for accountability and for responsibility to create guardrails around the fertility industry. And, and the thing is, it's not so crazy. These guardrails exist in every other country except for the United States. In Japan, there's a limit on the number of families that one donor can contribute to. In Canada and the UK, it's illegal to pay someone for a sperm and egg donation. Mm -hmm. There's smart guardrails that already exist in other countries. And then there's other countries who have just fully outlawed anonymous donation. Yep. These things already exist. They're already in practice. But the ASRM, you know, donor conception is their cash cow. Mm -hmm. And the fertility industry is afraid to do anything to jeopardize that flow of money. Yep. And, yeah. and what a horrible way to prey on people who do feel desperate. Right. You know, exactly. On either side of that equation. It's just awful. Yeah. And I get it. I mean, I have lots of friends who have experienced infertility or are queer couples that want to have children. I feel very strongly that anyone should be able to have a family in the way that they want to. But our thing is like, can we put some guardrails in place to protect sure. these kids Yeah, and connect them to their biological family? And that's always been the, the thing I, I'll never understand about donor conception is People are using a donor because they still want the child to be partly theirs. Mm -hmm. But then they could say, well, blood doesn't matter. Right. Their genetic relatives don't matter. Right. None of the stuff. And it's like, well, but you still wanted it to be yours. Like that part matters. Right. Yeah. But not the others. Right. Right. <laughs> like, make it make sense. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Otherwise, why didn't you just adopt a random child? <laughs> just exactly. I had a friend who her and her wife wanted to have a baby really badly. And they went through a very expensive process, like IVF process and retrievals. And then they went with an anonymous donor. And I was like, well, did you have a choice? And they were like, yeah, but it was $5,000 more to have a known donor. And I was like, you spent $150,000 on this baby and you didn't want to spend the extra $5,000 no to know who their father is? Like, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm with you. That doesn't yeah, make sense no. to me, but. But the industry is setting people up for this, right? right? It's wild. And these kids are going to have questions and hopefully everything's fine. And hopefully their kid is cool with it. And hopefully their medical history is fine. But I just can't imagine investing so much in having a child and then being like, oh, but we don't, we don't even know that. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, with the risk that in 10 years, the child needs to know about these health concerns, these mental health concerns sure. it, it's just yeah it just seems again sort of un well it is unfair to yeah, the child sad yeah wow well 
Amber, it's wonderful that you are getting into the fight and fighting for change. As you've mentioned, you've got a happy ending kind of fairy tale story and not everybody has that. But it also takes a lot of courage to share your journey. So we really appreciate you doing that. Oh, thank you. I, I think a lot of the stuff that is happening on the donor conceived advocacy side, we're modeling after the adoption advocacy mm. side, right? Because there's still a lot to be done there, but there's been clear wins in terms of access to your correct birth records and access to records and more restrictions around how children are moved around. And so we've really looked to those models to kind of mirror what we've done. And there are some states that have passed legislation around accurate records for donor conceived people around open ID donations. So we're making progress. We, we've gotten a couple states at least to make it illegal for a doctor to use their own sperm without telling a patient. So at least there's that. Yeah. <laughs> at least there's that. I mean, oh, well, I mean, right, baby steps, but still right. so Literally. important. So Literally important. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but yeah, it's silly that we even need to bring that up, right? But it's it's yeah. real. Yeah. It's still a real fear. Well, we definitely want to stay up to date as how things are moving along with the lawsuit. So if you don't mind us reaching out down the line just to see how things are going, that would be great. Yeah, of course. And you guys should definitely have Nick on the podcast. He's just a super yeah. articulate and fascinating person who has been in this whole game much longer than I have and right. has really just kind of dedicated his whole life to this. So sure. he, he has his own, you know, really fascinating story to tell. Mm. Yeah, that, that's great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Family Twist. We feature original music by Cosmic Afterthoughts. And Family Twist is presented by Savoir Faire Marketing Communications. Check out our website at familytwistpodcast.com for blog posts and all of our episodes. 